0: So if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Genesis 18. We're going to be jumping around a lot tonight. So if you like a lot of Bible, I think you're going to get a lot of Bible tonight. Maybe some parts of the Bible that you aren't normally uh, treading or opening up to. So again, come to these Bible studies. You never know when you're going to get into something that uh, we might not talk about that often. So we're gonna get into a lot of different passages tonight. We'll have some on the screen, but a lot of them will be turning to uh, Genesis 18. If you wanna go ahead and put a bookmark in Judges 19, we'll be turning there in a little while. Uh, Psalm 139, will end up there eventually. And uh, we'll even make our way to Isaiah. So I'll repeat all that stuff. So just start out in Genesis 18 and we'll be there for a little bit. So as long as I have been in church, Uh, As long as I've been alive, uh, which I've been brought up in church, um, there has been a persistent prayer request repeated and that's reverberated throughout every Christian assembly I've ever been a part of. Uh, And that has been specifically around the subject of Roe versus Wade. And tonight is a message... uh, in response to what came out this past week, what has been pre- talked about for several months now, uh, uh tonight's message is called "Row revoked a biblical response. Now, uh, again, this is not a political response. Uh, this is not a response from the conservative point or from the non conservative point. This is not a response from an American point of view, even though there might be some of those ideals trickled in and, 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 it's impossible for us not to bring those things with us. Uh, but this is to the best of my ability, uh, a biblical response. Again, I, I, we all have our politics. We all have our social views. Those are, are, are fine and dandy as long as they line up with God's word. But regardless of what they are, separate from God's word, they really don't mean anything or they shouldn't mean that much to us. What matters is what the Bible says, what God's word says. So I think tonight we're going to talk about some stuff that you already agree with. We're going to reaffirm some things, and, and, and there's going to be times where you, you, you say, of course, amen. I was amen before you said that. Uh, we're going to talk about some things that maybe uh, you, you didn't expect to come up in this conversation, uh, but I, I think they're, again, biblical, which I think we need to search the whole scriptures for what God's word says about this subject and subjects in the periphery. And we're also going to really start our conversation uh, around kind of how we respond to the things going on that we have no control over, uh, whether it's sins that are committed or whether it's decisions that are made or not made. So we're going to be a little bit all over the place tonight, but I believe it's going to be a a cohesive message in the end and one that will benefit from. So uh, again, as long as I've been alive, as long as as I've been in church, um, I have heard a persistent prayer request uh, mentioned in church before I ever knew what it really was, honestly. I remember being in church and hearing people say, hey, we need to pray for this or pray against this, and and I didn't. it was probably into my teenage years, honestly, and and I don't really remember, but I I didn't know what it was about. I didn't really know what the word meant or what the subject was about or what the court case was about, Uh, but again, growing up in the 90s, it wasn't that far removed considering where we are now, even 20, 30 years later, Um, but I remember all of my Christian life and all of my church life, I've heard a, a prayer for the end of abortion that I've been commanded to and led by the church to pray for an end of abortion. Again, didn't know what abortion was for a long, long, long time i just heard people talk about it. Uh, hey, we should pray that this would stop. And, and again, it was years in you know teenage years when I you know learned about it really in school probably for the first time. Whenever I begin to learn civic uh, civic history and, and and world history or United States history. Um, Supreme Court and and some of the major cases and milestones uh, and probably around 9th, 10th, 11th grade, uh, learning about Roe versus Wade, which is what, uh, you know, of course, is connected to the subject of abortion. So all my life in church, I heard the request that we should pray for the end of abortion and uh, attached to the hip of that prayer request was that we would pray for the end or the revocation of Roe versus Wade. Again, never knew who Roe was or what, who Wade was and really what the verses meant, but this is what we should pray for. And, and again, as a kid and as a teenager, I just kind of went along with it because of course, um, if it's bad, we need to pray about it or we need to pray for God to, to, to take us out of it. Now, uh, every political cycle, every election cycle, the, 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 this was a big subject. And uh, over time, uh, it, it went from being something that everybody kind of had a similar opinion on, and there was a fringe group that said this one thing and then it grew into being a majority opinion um, in favor of or supporting uh, the cause of abortion. So uh, again, th- things have changed quite a bit in my time on earth since the since the 90s and, and, and opinions and uh, the different uh, attitudes toward it. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I've heard this and I've been a part of the prayers uh, for this or around this subject since I was, again, old enough to remember uh, that abortion would end and that Roe versus Wade would be revoked. Now, the latter, uh, the latter, the revocation of Roe versus Wade, I didn't realize this until probably, you know, a long long time after, but obviously the revocation of Roe versus Wade would not guaranteed and will never guarantee the end of the former. Um, but the idea was, and there's obviously truth to it, uh, that Roe versus Wade made made it legal and and made it uh, and provided federal funding and assistance and and support for the cause of abortion. Now, Y'all don't need me need me to go into the or chronicle the lengthy uh, you know story behind this. Uh, again, it's almost 50 years. Literally, it'll be 50 years next January since all this is, is has transpired. Um, y'all don't need me to go into a lengthy story. Y'all know all about it. Many of you have lived through it and watched it go. You know, go from one end to the other, um, and, and talk about the different responses and all that. That's not why I'm here. Oh, while you're here, clearly, um, you know, some states have worked to, uh, to restrict abortion as much as possible to varying degrees of success, even under the last 50 years or in the last 50 years. Uh, and, and of course, now we'll be able to do even more. Uh, but nonetheless, here we are, uh, again, almost 50 years later, uh, the courts have rescinded and revoked the federal legalization uh, and sent it back to the state governments. And of course, there'll be plenty that will uphold Roe and, and even you know go farther than, than what its original ramifications were. And there'll be plenty that will rise the middle of the fence and there'll be plenty that will make it completely illegal and, and that's kind of where we're going to be at probably uh, for the foreseeable future and even if it's not something that is assisted by governments there's going to be people that choose that direction and, and that's just going to be something that's uh, really impossible to avoid but nonetheless uh, the short story is that abortions will still happen even in states where it's illegal people will choose or people like they are forced to or feel like they have no choice to terminate a pregnancy people will do that and again we probably won't ever Ever be able to stop people uh, from from doing that in an entirety or in in a complete sense? Uh, But the subject uh, being on everybody's mind, the subject being on everyone's mind, us being us having prayed for this for years and years and years and years. A lot of times, probably praying, wondering if it ever happened. Much like the church, whenever Peter was in jail and they were gathered in uh, John Mark's house praying for uh, for Peter to be released from prison, and when Peter shows up wanting to get in, they didn't believe it was him because they prayed for it, yet they never believed it actually would happen, but thankfully God hears our prayers even when we are filled with doubt, which I'm very, very, very pleased with and very filled with hope on that occasion. Uh, but the subject on our minds, I feel like it's a good opportunity for us as a church and really a necessity for the church to gather around the subject that clearly gets our attention and everybody, you know, this, you go on the internet and talk about it, everybody has an opinion, right, wrong, and, and, and between. And I think it's good and it's really right that we as a church discuss what the Bible says about this and how it might address the different concerns that we may have with regard to it. Uh, And initially we're gonna come from a point of view that you might not have ever come from, but I feel like a lot of Christians are at or have really held this concern and then we'll launch from that place. Uh, So there's gonna be a lot of kind of mini messages in in the the talk tonight uh, that uh, deal with this overarching subject or or under this overarching subject, but I think that uh, we'll see it come together with each section. Um, I, I wanna get to the less important area of concern first, not that it's not important, it's just not as big a deal as the actual issue, Uh, but it doesn't fit the larger theme, but it will play into, uh, you know, and provide a good platform for that conversation. So I feel like abortion comes into the church's mind and abortion concerns the church, particularly the American church, and of course that's who we are, we can't avoid that. I, I feel like abortion concerns the church for two separate reasons. Uh, where there, While there is obvious concern, and I, I believe the greatest level of concern for the lives that are at risk, the, the babies that are at risk. I feel like that's the main, main reason, of course, that's what it's about. It's about aborting children, so of course that's the main concern. But I also feel like, and I think you'll agree, that there is a vocal concern with how this affects us. How this issue, or how the legalization of and the ongoing, you know, uh, partaking of uh, abortion and the in the support for abortion, I, I feel like there's there's a lot of concern in the church, not just about abortion, but about, about a lot of sin and sin that is endorsed and sin that is legalized, if you will, and sin that is uh, apologized for or upheld and supported on a national level. I, I think you'll agree. I think there's a lot of concern in the church over. What is it, you know, how is it going to work out for a nation that not only allows it, but in some cases, uh, facilitates it and enables it? Uh, we'll cover the last one first, because I think that will allow us to focus solely on the, the lives that are at risk, which deserves most attention for the later part. Um, I feel like there's often a lot of discourse around how God may well judge a country if such things like abortion are not only legal, but enabled and upheld as a just thing. Now, you may not have ever worried about that, but I feel like having grown up in a very conservative culture, being a very conservative person in in, in almost every way, uh, having grown up in a church where there was this sort of, uh, you know, not fear, but this sort of, you know, concern over, well, as America goes down a certain road, does that mean that we as a nation are nearing a place of of being judged by God or have we already been judged by God? And that's a whole conversation that we could talk about for all night long. But I think that there's a concern, and I think, agree that Christians often bear a burden, and and not that this isn't a a real and and, and righteous burden, I feel like there's a lot of times where Christians are concerned that if a nation upholds sin and endorses sin and enables sin, uh, not just abortion, but other issues that deal with morality, I feel like there's a concern in the church that if this is allowed or encouraged, even if we don't endorse it, even if we stand against it, is there a chance that we might suffer from some ramification that God allows to happen? or God brings on the nation. And obviously you're concerned with what might happen in your own country because that affects you, right? Uh, and, and I think that, that that is where I wanna start tonight because I think that there's a lot of concern through the years um, that uh, if abortion and other things are legal and enabled, how does that affect the church? And it, it does, somehow God, does somehow God hold back blessings or does God send a curse or a judgment? And, and again, you may have never worried about this, but somebody you know has and somebody you know does, and somebody may say something about this in the future. And, and I think it's good for you to be able to say, well, the Bible actually says something about that, and, and we have reason to have hope or we have reason to be concerned. So I want to get into that. First, uh, Now, I don't want anybody to mishear what I find to be the biblical truth on this subject, because if you take what I say in a 30-second clip, you might say, well, that guy's crazy. Maybe I am. But I, I want to make sure that you, you, we understand that we're staying in the Bible and we're rooting our talk in the Bible, and we want to make sure that we hear what the Bible has to say, not what anybody else has to say. Now, I, I feel like there's a lot of misappropriated and outright Uh, uninformed opinions uh, about this subject. So by no means is this to make light of the subject or area of concern, but we'll get to that. But remember, uh, right now we're just focusing on the notion or really the fear that we often have certain sins, uh, that, that we have about certain sins running rampant and how that might affect everybody else. So this is why uh, the church is often a great, uh, has a vocal, uh, has, a, has a strong voice against certain sins that nobody in the house commits, but we are concerned if they're allowed to go on, you know, is that going to affect the national level? Or is that going to somehow cut off God's hand from the nation? And again, that's a very Old Testament ideal, and that's something that obviously we know a lot about because we read the Bible a lot. Um, so I want to address that specifically And then we'll get into the others. So now our go-to example uh, about a nation being judged by God is always, and you would know this without even being open to Genesis, the go-to example is Sodom and Gomorrah, which were these two sister cities in the Valley of Salt uh, that were uh, very prosperous and very prominent cities uh, in the ancient world sometime between 2000 and about 1600 BC during the life of Abraham or during you know the story or featured in the story of Abraham um how Sodom and Gomorrah were, were these two na- was this nation these two cities judged by God because of a selective people's sin that's what we often hear about right uh, and and not to dance around it the sin of homosexuality is what often gets pointed to as a God judged those cities because that sin was being committed in those in in that in those cities or in that nation so and I feel like that often kind of makes us think well you know, did everybody, everyone in the city wasn't doing that stuff, so did God just judge the whole place for the sin that a couple people were committing, or a few people, or even a lot of people were committing? Is that how it works? And if that's something that you've heard, and that's something you've been talked about, taught about in church, no wonder you, you're concerned uh, about, hey, what happens when a nation says, hey, this sin's okay. Uh, how's that affect me? And if you're, if that's concerned you, of course it should concern you, because there's a story about two nations getting lit on fire in the Old Testament, not to men's words, right? They literally burned to the ground. Um, so I I want to jump into that story, and then I want to kind of glean a little bit of information about what God was up to in that story, and how that affects us. How that actually can uh, give us a pretty incredible word tonight around this particular subject. So, if you have a Bible open to Genesis 18, uh, Genesis 18, I want to look. I want you to look at Genesis 18, verse 16, and read with me down through verse 20. So this is after God has come to Abraham. God comes to Abraham in in human form. He's got two angels with him. Uh, Abraham cooked some dinner. Uh, So it's a really neat story, but then it kind of goes into a more serious direction. The men, which are the angels, rose from there and looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? As the real reason I came here was to address what's going on down in the valley. I can't keep this from Abraham, can I? Verse 18, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children in his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, And because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, of course, God probably already knew. I'm not just, he says he's going to see because he wants to know, but I assume God already knew, but he wanted to be present for a reason, mainly to talk to Abraham. But I want to talk about the outcry. It it says there again in verse 20 and verse 21, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, anytime you see the word outcry in the Bible, uh, it has a similar, it comes from a similar place. If you've ever read the story of Cain and Abel, right? You've all read the story of Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. The scripture says that that Abel's blood cried out from the ground to, uh, to, for, for justice. And in and, and, and the story of Exodus, when the Jews are under oppression, it says that they cried out and that the outcry rose to heaven. So anytime you read the word outcry in the Bible, it specifically is in reference to an oppressed people crying out for help and for mercy an outcry for an oppressed people, specifically in this instance, against those enacting violence and immorality. So in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was rampant, violence and immorality, which we all know the story, but we'll talk a little bit more more about it later. But in this instance, there has been an outcry for an oppressed people against those enacting violence and immorality. Now, if you study a little bit of history, secular history, um, the the, the history will tell you that Sodom specifically, being the the main city of the two, Sodom was sort of like an ancient Las Vegas. Uh, It it was a city of high rollers and uh, elite insiders. Uh, Outsiders were not welcome in this city. And this was really a custom in the ancient world, but Sodom and Gomorrah, you did not visit Sodom and Gomorrah. You essentially applied to live there. You applied for membership there. And woe be unto you if you were wandering through the desert and came to the city of Sodom looking for relief because they would let you in, but you would not leave alive. Strangers were assaulted upon entry. They were violated and humiliated and murdered. If you study ancient history, this happened in several Middle Eastern cities, it it wasn't exclusive to Sodom, but Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically Sodom, if you were a stranger and you went into the city thinking that somebody might give you a drink of water or there might be a place to stay, you would be violated, you would be humiliated, you would be murdered. It was a society completely given over to sensuality. It was about pleasure in the most grotesque and unnatural ways, which we are very familiar with the story of the angels trying to get to Lod and, of course, them being pulled at by these men driven by this, just, this awful and outrageous lust to which they attempted to rape Those angels. Uh, Now we know the story, uh, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But about the outcry. The outcry. The outcry that is up against Sodom specifically grew from those who had lost loved ones and wayward family members to Sodom's allure. The outcry was not coming from inside the house. The outcry was not coming from inside the city because everyone in the city was part of the deal. They were in on the game. They were part of the society. The outcry was coming from those outside the valley that watched one loved one after another drift into Sodom's allure. Some went there and joined in on the sin. some went there and suffered from the sin. So the outcry was coming from people like Abraham. Now you understand why God came to Abraham because Abraham was one of those people crying out for his family that went down because of the bright lights and because of the possibilities of prosperity. Lot and his family went into the city of Sodom, not looking for sin, but looking for prosperity, looking for uh, their own, to make their own way. And Abraham was crying out against the city, but also crying that Lot might be spared from its wickedness. Now, if you know the more of the story, Lot had found a place of prominence there. The scripture says that Lot had a seat at the gate, which means he was one of the elders of the city, which means he was one of the elected officials or somebody recognized as a great man. Now, we do know that Lot did not take part in the sin of Sodom. So how did Lot become accepted? Well, if you know the backstory, Lot essentially broke off of Abraham's tribe because his men were getting in fights with Abraham's men. So Abraham said, listen, Lot, I've got more cattle I know what to do with. I've got more gold than I know what to do with. I've got more servants than I know what to do with. So Lot, you take a, a bunch of my cattle and a bunch of my servants and a bunch of my gold and go and make your own way. So when Lot rolls up to Sodom with a bunch of cattle and a bunch of servants and a bunch of money, the people of Sodom said, whoa, 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 we've got a dignitary here. We've got somebody who fits in with us. So come on in, Lot, bring your family in. And of course, Lot was able to escape the corruption because he was already successful, but he had to turn his head to a whole lot that was going on there in order to maintain that seat of prominence. Abraham knew that it would either cost Lot his morals or it would cost him his life eventually when he had to take that stand. Well, God knows Abraham's upset. He reveals to Abraham his plan regarding the cities, which was to destroy them, which was to destroy them. God makes it known to Abraham who is was, was worried that his own family would suffer as a result of this judgment. So Abraham gets the idea that this, these cities are gonna burn. They're, they're not gonna survive, that there's no way that God lets this go on. People are dying, people are getting, being raped, people are being assaulted, people are being violated. This is ridiculous, this can't go on. So God is making a decision to destroy the cities. Abraham is worried, is my family gonna suffer because of other people's sins? So Abraham and God have a conversation to which God assures him, there's no reason to worry, Abraham. But again, at first, there was a great reason to worry. Look at verse 22. The men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, and Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And this is a concern the churches had. And again, we just didn't read the passage that actually addresses this concern are the righteous going to suffer because of the decisions made by the wicked? And even though the wicked are more popular or more populated and more powerful, uh, are the righteous going to suffer? And suppose, Abraham says, suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Would you destroy the place, not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous could be, could be, should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. So Abraham kind of talks his way out of this. Well, there's no reason, there's no way God's gonna punish the righteous with the wicked, even if the city is wicked and even if they shouldn't be in the city or they didn't have a choice to be in the city or in this case, Lot did choose there, but he's still thinking God's not gonna judge the righteous. Is he? Verse 26, the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the place. What does it say? For their sake. So if I find 50 righteous people now, history tells us, and, and there's varying uh, reports, but some of the oldest historical sources, which is what we usually go with, that Sodom and Gomorrah were very, very selective in their population. So there was probably less than 2,000 people actually living in these cities, maybe even let closer to 1,000 or 1,200 people. So very few people actually lived in these cities. It was a city full of mostly men it, it, with with of course some women that were not really free they were you know, enrolled they were part of the prostitution and, and again an awful, awful society uh, mostly men who were giving themselves over to them to each other and, and also uh, you know taking advantage uh, or, or you know, in control of, of women and If you were a stranger you didn 't make it you, know, you weren 't welcome and you, and you weren 't allowed to just move in it wasn 't a place that had a hey we got some we, you know, we want to have some new people move in uh, it was a very exclusive uh, a, very, um, a very insider only kind of place so God says if I find 50 righteous people notice the implications here I would let the city keep going and if God does not judge the city what's going to keep happening in the city they're going to keep sinning right I mean can we just kind of say that part out loud if God doesn't judge the city and there are people in the city who are doing awful things, what's gonna happen if the city is not judged? They're gonna keep sinning. And again, I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's just the reality. God says, I will not, I will not judge the city if I find 50 righteous. That's a pretty big, that's pretty disproportional you know, ratio, right? 50 out of thousand, a couple thousand, that's, uh, you know, that shows you how much God cares for and sees a purpose in the righteous now Abraham weasels God down because Abraham isn't confident that there's 50 40 30 20 righteous people he knows about four he thinks he knows about four so down in verse 32 then he said Lord let the Lord not be angry and I will speak once more suppose there's just 10 found there and he said I will not destroy for the sake of 10 so 10, let's, let's say there's only 1,000 people there. So let's make, it, let's make the percentage as big as it can be because if there was more than 1,000, if there was 10,000, the percentage is even more narrow. Let's say there's 1,000 people living in Sodom. So God says for 10 out of 1,000, I will spare the city. If there's 10 righteous, which is less than 1% of the probably 1,200, you know, 1,500 population. For 1% of the population, I will keep the city going for them. That's a pretty incredible promise, isn't it? That God's message is not, I'm going to judge them with the wicked. God says, I'm going to judge, I'm going to spare judgment of everybody for the sake of the 10, for the sake of the 1%. Now, the story goes, there wasn't but one family. So God's solution is, let's get the one family out because there's not 10, there's just four. Turns out there's just three, but one was being a pretty good actor. Three God-fearing people, which God allowed to escape before he judged the city. Now, a couple things here, and I don't bring this up because I wanna be a contrarian. I bring this up because I can't not bring it up. It's in the Bible. We've been told, and, and, and there's no reason to not go along with it, that the only reason why God judged the city was because of the sin that we see in Genesis 19, whereas when the angels uh, are attempted, or the men of the city attempt to rape the angels, which is, of course, men trying to get a hold of men. But the Bible says there was some other stuff going on in Sodom. And I want to show you this, not again, not to say that wasn't a big deal but to also say there was some other stuff that God says was a big deal, big enough of a deal to burn the place down over. Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. He's talking to Israel. She and her daughters had pride, had excess of food and prosperous ease. I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible, Ezekiel 16. This was the sin of Sodom. Pride, ease, ease. prosperous ease in excess of food, and they did not aid the poor and the needy. And of course, you know the story. They they, they didn't just not help the poor and the needy. They assaulted them, right? I mean, we read about it. They were literally attacking people. But God's condemnation of Sodom, according to Ezekiel, according to Ezekiel 16 is, yeah, there was some immoral stuff going down. and, And there's no place for that. It's unnatural. It's not part of god's plan and and it can't be condoned but there was some other stuff that the bible says are equally as egregious and of course are listed first pride excess of food now what's that about it means they had more and they could have helped people with it and they didn't prosperous ease prosperous ease means, you know we often talk about people that don't work because they are you know lazy and they should be working there's a lot of people that don't work because they don't have to work but that's still not an excuse, is it? Right? I mean, people that, oh, I got a lot of money. And instead of doing something with the money, they just kind of sit back and they count it. That, according to the Bible, is just as bad as people that choose not to and, and, and should. And according to Sodom's story, it was reason that they were judged. Now, that's why it's important to read the whole Bible, because sometimes the whole Bible gives you insight about other parts of the Bible, now, keep in mind, God would have spared the nation. Now, remember, God would have spared the nation, prolonging the violence, prolonging the immorality, if there had just been 10 people found that trusted in him. So, this tells me what God's response to sinful nations is. Not initially to scorch the earth, but rather his response is patience towards sinners and a purpose for the righteous as salt. Light and refuge. Jesus said those things, right? Your salt, your light, your refuge. Now we're all on the same page, right? Now with that same logic, you can, you can take the subject of abortion, you can take the subject of same-sex marriage, you can take the subject of transsexual and all that stuff. Any issue that you think, wow, how can that happen? Is God gonna judge America? And I'm not saying that America doesn't deserve or does deserve to be judged. I'm just saying, if you are concerned that somehow, some way, because something is being endorsed or legalized by people that you didn't vote for or you don't support, is God going to affect, am I going to be affected because of their decisions? The biblical answer is no. Now that doesn't mean you turn your head to the sin and say, well, I don't care about it. You should care about it. You should be a light into that darkness. You should be refuge toward those sinners and you should be salt as in preserving the world that they're attempting to rot and destroy. So it matters what you do If God chooses to be patient, which he does, your responsibility is to be salt, to be light, and to be refuge. Now, case in point, did you know, and if you've been here for a few years, you do know, but did you know that there is an episode exactly like Genesis 19 where we see the immorality of Sodom? Did you know that there is a story that is identical to that that took place in the nation of Israel. Probably not because it doesn't get talked about a lot because it just kind of is inconvenient with a lot of narratives that get preached. We aren't gonna read the whole Genesis account, but when we read this account over in Judges, you'll immediately recall the story of Lot and the angels in Sodom. So turn over to Judges 19, and let me tell you what's going on in this part of the Bible. Judges 19, remember the story of Judges, they had no king and they all did what was right in their own eyes. We know that story. Uh, judges 19 is, is a, a really Israel at its worst. Uh, there's no centralized worship. There's no godly leadership. So a, a single Levite, a single Levite is corrupt and immoral and twists the law to basically start his own cult. And this Levite, because nobody else has a Bible and nobody else has any access to the history of Moses and Joshua, this Levite deceives an entire group of tribe or entire section of Israel, an entire population in the mountains of Judea, to basically follow him as their spiritual leader. Now, this guy is a piece of work. Uh, Proof of that: the story that we're reading about tonight is the Levite is strolling into town with a, a mistress, not a wife. He had one of those, but a mistress. So this Levi and his mistress, which again tells you that already a problem with the story, uh, is coming into town that is about five or 10 miles next to Jerusalem, which is a pretty important city, right? Jerusalem is right next door, uh, a, a city in Gabeah, And the Levi and his mistress are going to camp out in the city park because there's no inns and nobody wants to, nobody seems to be friendly in this part of town or in this part of Israel. And they run into an old man And this is where we're gonna enter the story. Judges 19, verse 20. The old man said, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. Now, if you read the Genesis account, you remember Lot telling the angels, hey, I don't wanna spend the night outside. It gets rough out here at night. And if you're a stranger, you are not gonna survive. So this old man says, I don't know about, I don't know if you know what's going on in this part of the country, uh, Mr. Levi, uh, but uh, you cannot sleep outside. You need to come with me. Verse 21. So he brought them into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys. They washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were enjoying themselves and suddenly certain men of the city, now again, you could copy and paste this in Genesis 19, the same verses used, almost the same words. Certain men of the city perverted men surrounded the house, beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the man. So not the woman, I mean, we'll take her, but we really want the man. Bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him, which is, again, assault him, rape him. But the old man went out to them and said, no, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly seeing this man is coming to my house. Do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter. Have you read that? Remember Lot said, hey, here's my daughters. The old man says, here's my virgin daughter. And and, oh, Mr. Levi, I hope you don't mind. Here is this man's concubine. I mean, hey, I don't know if, is this okay? You don't want to take you, do you? Hey, take this man's mistress. Let them bring him out. Humble them. Now that's a very unique Hebrew phrase because the point of this was to humiliate people. Yes, it was some sick pleasure they had, but the whole idea was, you're not welcome here and we're gonna use you and take advantage of you. And I, and I, you know, I know this is kind of you know, intense to talk about in church, but it needs to be spoke about. We're gonna take advantage of you and do what we want with you. And after we're done with you, you're done. You're dead. We'll kill you. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do no such vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. And the woman came to the door as, as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was. I mean, again, this is really intense for, for kids, but she claws her way back to the door and dies on the threshold because of what the men did to her pretty rough isn't it that was not in sodom that was not in some wicked gentile city that was in israel that was in a city a few miles from bethlehem from jerusalem now the levite does this pretty sick thing but he's trying to send a message he cuts this woman up he cuts her body up and he sends a package to different tribes and he says Hey y'all, there's some bad stuff going down in Israel. This woman was violated by men who were doing things that haven't been ever haven't ever been done in our nation. And the last time this stuff went down, we know what happened. There's a there's a there's a sea full of salt that are the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. So down in verse 30 it says, And it was so it was that all who saw it said, No doubt, no such deed has ever has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer it, and speak up. So the nation is in terror because they know what happened last time this stuff went down. Again, there's a sea of salt to prove it. So what happens next is the nation declares war on this single city. Because the nation, the leaders think, well, if we declare war against the, of the city of Gabeah, then we'll show God, hey, we don't approve of this stuff. We don't like we don't we don't endorse this stuff. So we're going to kill all these people in the city before God kills all of us because they thought that they were all going to be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not what happens. God does not judge the nation. He does not judge Gebia. He does not judge Israel. Clearly abiding by the same principle he spoke to Abraham about that he saves the wicked because of the righteous. Now we know God had a covenant with Israel, but that clearly Israel wasn't any better than the rest of the world, was he? Were they? They're doing the same stuff the wicked people of Sodom were doing. But God spared the nation, even though they were doing some pretty wicked stuff. Now this is not to excuse the sin of Sodom, but it's to amplify the grace of God. Do we hear that? Are we on the same page about that? I'm not showing you the story to say, oh, that's not a big deal. That's awful. I mean, that's a a sick and twisted story, a heartbreaking story. And and hopefully, you know, those men, the people that were a part of that are in eternal judgment for what they did. But God does not destroy the city or the nation. He spares them. Because God had a covenant with Israel. Israel. So you know what this says to you and me in our nation, in any nation? While his patience persists, we must endure, keep preserving, keep shining and keep offering refuge. That's what we gotta do. I'm not trying to say the sin isn't a big deal, it is. But our mission must be a bigger deal to God because God is patient with our nation, with every nation, but with ours as we've witnessed it. I hope this help puts to rest some fears and concerns, but again, not because the sin isn't a big deal, but I hope this brings our attention to, the, to, to what our purpose is. Now, let's close out by talking about the actual issue that we came here to talk about. Abortion. Psalm 139, if you'll turn there with me. Psalm 139 is a psalm of David. It's an, an incredible psalm about each and every one of us the value we have the purpose our lives have but it also gives us some insight about when life begins it's an incredible insight psalm 139 verse 13 through 18 for you formed my inward parts for you covered me literally gave me my body in my mother's womb I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows them very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully in in the lowest part of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. That is an incredible verse. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. In your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts toward me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, there would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So hallelujah for this incredible passage that doesn't just give us courage and us hope, but it tells us about all life, all human life, specifically, teaches us about the sanctity of human life that begins in the womb again this isn't news to us this isn't something that you don't you would disagree with me everybody agrees on this if you're in a church like this but again maybe this is something you've never thought about so we need to talk about it that the sanctity of human life life begins in the womb but it continues to the tomb that there's never a point, there's not a point, you know, in your, you know, as you as your fetus, there's not a point where, you know, before you were born, well, you know, six month, nine months, where you actually become a person from the very moment of conception, you are a valuable human being to God. But also there's not a point in your life where you cross over some threshold, you know, 80, 90, 95, 100, where all of a sudden you lack value. From the beginning to the end, you matter to God. Everybody has an instinctive value from the womb to the tomb. Verse 14 mentions the womb. Verse 16, my unformed substance. So in a fetus's most primal embryonic state, there is life ordained by God. Not a few weeks in, not a few months in, but literally the moment of conception. Primal embryonic state, there is ordained life by God. Now, I know this brings so many questions to the table that maybe you don't have, but somebody next to you might have. So, I want to bring these up to us because you, might need to be, you need to be prepared to talk to those people. People bring up the issue of rape, the issue of incest, the risk on a mother's life. All those are real concerns that I've never dealt with as a man. And, and fortunately, as God has given me a, a favorable state, I never have dealt with even uh, next to uh, a, a woman. So the issue of rape, incest, and the risk on a mother's life, I know those are real questions that people have. But here's what I also know. We cannot run from the truth that what Psalm 139 tells us, that all life is ordained by God. We can't run from that. And and just because it might make us uncomfortable doesn't mean we say, well, I don't care about it or I don't want to deal with it. We got to deal with it. Obviously, if we've never been in the categories, we don't know what it's like to face those realities. But nonetheless, this is why we champion the cause of life and the value of life, not only for the baby in the womb, but for the mother who bears the child. Mothers bearing children must be reminded that their life matters too. And they're facing, if they're facing an overwhelming situation pulled by temptation and fear, the church needs to love them and support them and remind them that their situation isn't irredeemable and that their child isn't inconvenient, that he or she is a gift from God. Even if the situation is so un- un- unimaginable, complicated, that doesn't take away that this chapter shows us that life is ordained by God. Yes, there may be complicated layers to the story that are beyond our understanding, but no measure of complication renders the child with any less value or purpose in the kingdom of God no matter what they are born with, no matter what circumstances they're born into, no measure of complication renders a child or a person with any less value. In church, we need to be aware of this because when we have people with disabilities, people with situations that we've never thought about and never really gave much thought to, when they come into our congregation, we see someone who's not a nuisance, not a complication, not an inconvenience, but a life that has as much value and as much purpose as anybody else does. That brings, value, that brings us to the value of women and children separate from birthing process. The Bible has a lot to say about this matter. We talked about this a few Wednesday nights ago, but it bears repeating. The Bible has a lot to say, a lot to say in closing about how we regard vulnerable women and children, vulnerable mothers and children That they not be undervalued, nor forgotten, nor forsaken. Now, I I didn't tell you this earlier, but I would like for you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you will. Deuteronomy 10, we looked at a few verses a few nights ago, but I I wanna bring this up because this is so important. Deuteronomy 10, again, that's early on in the Bible, uh, the the fifth book, and you can just listen to me if if you can't get there, but Deuteronomy 10. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 through 18 God says to the people of Israel, this is what I require of you as, as citizens of my nation. If you're gonna be known for one thing and you think, well, I think there's a lot of things that people of God should be known for. Well, this is what God chooses to make the most important thing. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, keep his commandments, keep his commandments, Keep the commandments of the Lord, his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with, with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. He chose the descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. So this is God saying, I need to get to your hearts. When you When you see the Bible, when you see it, circumcise your heart or don't be stiff necked. That's God shaking people saying, hey, y'all, I know you bear my name and you bear my blessing, but I want your heart to look like mine. And man, doesn't that have a message for the church? I know you look like Christians and you sing like Christians and you get together like Christians, but your heart, that's what I care about. All right. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. The stranger in this case is foreigner, but that's a whole other sermon. This is what God's heart beats for and what ours should be for as well. Care for and a champion the cause of vulnerable women and children. Now, anytime in the Bible you see the word widow, it's not just referring to, not not that it excludes, but when you see the word widow in the Bible, it's not only referring to elderly women whose husband died in their elderly years. In the Bible, when you see the word widow, it oftentimes is referring to younger women whose husbands most likely died in the battles or in the wars around Israel. So in, in the story of Israel, there's a lot of widows who are in their 20s and 30s, sometimes even younger, because their husbands died in the battlefield. And in this situation, if a woman did not have a lot of value, nobody wanted to marry her if she brought that baggage of children and, and of the other husband's debt or the other husband's uh, you know, uh, legacy, that widows were very unlikely to be married again in the ancient world so when the bible says God cares specifically for widows yes he's referring to elderly women whose husbands died in their older years but in a lot of cases they were better off than the younger women whose husbands died in their 20s and 30s because they had no security blanket to fall back on so Deuteronomy says he cares for the orphan and for the women So here's what I wanna say in regards to what has just happened in our country. God has given us an answered prayer. Uh, Abortion won't end, you know, abortions will happen, but on 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 a federal scale, on a national scale, something that was facilitating and enabling and encouraging abortion, which again, life ordained by God, we have received an answered prayer and we should rejoice and be glad in it. But not only that, God has answered our prayer, so we must answer his prayer. Do you hear me on this? God says, this is what I require of you, my people. God's answered a prayer, hasn't he? So we must respond to his prayer for us by renewing our care and ministry towards those in need. Don't you think that's a pretty fair exchange? And if we've been praying for this for 50 years, I think we ought to be a little bit on our toes, right? Ready to respond. James says, religion that is pure undefiled before God and the father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That is, and to go where they are and help them in their needs and care for them and elevate them. The church in its early days was known for how it provided for women and children from shelter to adoption. So church, I don't think this is a bold, this is overstating it to show God how grateful we are, we should be answering the call to serve, give, shelter, foster, adopt, and care for vulnerable moms and children. We should. If we are truly grateful that God answered a prayer, which he did clearly, who would have thought in 2022 that that would happen? Nobody thought that was gonna happen. Even conservatives didn't think it was gonna happen. Even with a majority on the bench, we didn't think it was gonna happen, but it did. So what is required of us? There ought ought not be a crisis center in the country without full volunteer rosters and ample provisions to care for women and children. There should be zero crisis centers in the country right now that have a need, whether volunteers or supplies. We ought, there ought not to be any children looking for homes in order to find refuge. We ought to be quick to provide for those in need out of gratitude. Proverbs 23 verse 10 says, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the field of the fatherless. Now this is referring to how in the Old Testament, people's fields were required, people were required to mark off the four corners of their fields to allow widows and orphans to come and get crops. You know the story of Ruth. She was in a field gleaning. And in the ancient days, if you owned a land, if you owned a field, the four corners were supposed to be preserved for and left for widows and orphans and, and, and women and children to come and get food from. So what is the proverb saying? Hey, don't forget that landmark. Hey, you don't own that whole acre. You own 75% of that acre, but 25% of that, it belongs to the needy. Well, I thought it was just 10. No, that goes to God, but the 25%, right? Four corners, that goes to the needy. For their redeemer is strong and he will plead their cause against you. Who's you? It's me and you, right? Circling back to our earlier conversation, When God is bringing a word of judgment against Israel in the Old Testament, I want you to hear what he says through the prophet Isaiah. You can look at there, look in chapter one, if you want to, but in in Isaiah chapter one, God literally calls Israel Sodom because of their falling away from him. And he says, Hey, I've heard your song, and I've seen you worship, and I've saw your assemblies, and I'm kind of tired of all that stuff because you keep coming before me with your hands spread out, and your heart, and your, and your voice is loud, but you're not doing anything. And listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 16 Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, put away your evil doings, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. So, what are the two, who are the two categories that they are called to care for, children and women. Now, again, men, I'm one of you. I know, hey, what about us? Hey, the Bible has plenty to say about helping people of all categories. But what does the Bible say a whole lot about women and children, especially the vulnerable mothers and children? So what is our command? Champion the cause of the unborn, all that are born, and those chosen to bear them. So not only the infants in the womb, by all means. That's a precious life of God, and it is murder to abort. But it's just as sinful to ignore the needs of all life. It doesn't have to be either or, right? It, it, it can be, and it is both. So we should be ecstatic that Roe v. Wade was overturned. We should be ecstatic and we should be overjoyed. We should be reminded that our work continues, that every baby born needs to know they matter and every struggling mother needs to know the same. We must be an advocate for every baby and every mother, every vulnerable boy and girl and woman, so that they may know that they are valued by God and we must do our best to ascribe and highlight their value even when the world doesn't. That's what gives the church the brightest light. And that's what makes us most like our heavenly father. Psalm 68, he's a father of the fatherless, protector of widows. That is God in his holy habitation. We are ecstatic. We are overjoyed. But we are also reminded of our sacred duty to plead the cause of those closest to God's heart. So let's go tell the world that God's answered a prayer, but we're gonna answer his prayer for us. We're gonna remind every boy and girl, they're a gift from God, they're a gift from heaven. They have a purpose that this world might say is not there, but we're gonna show it to them. We're also gonna remember that everybody that's vulnerable, everybody that has a need, we, the church care for them because from the womb to the tomb, life is ordained by God. And nobody will ever take that value away. Jesus died to prove how much, you value, how much you are valued by God. And nothing will ever take that away. Church, let our voice be heard this week. Rejoice, but resolve to be who he's called you to be. Light, salt, and refuge. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It offers us insight and counsel. Thank you for being to us a heavenly father that loves us in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our sin. Lord, thank you for this incredible conversation around your word that shows us that while we are concerned about the sin in our nation, we are reminded that you are patient and we have a purpose. Lord, we thank you for the incredible, amazing act of God that it took to overturn something that many thought was foregone conclusion. We believe that you answered that prayer, but we also believe that that's even more of an impetus on us to go and be the church, to care for and to shelter and to reach out to and to make sure we provide the needs of those that may be vulnerable, those that may not feel like they have a place to go. We may let us be on mission to show them there's a place for them here. Lord, thank you so much for answered prayer and thank you for this calling over all of us. Thank you for making all life life sacred and all life matter and all life valuable. And let us go tell the world that that'll always be the case. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.